Good morning everyone. Um, Would you please open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be starting at verse 13 and going into chapter 4 verse 11. And if you have the church Bibles it can be found on page 784. Matthew chapter 3 starting at verse 13 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John But John tried to deter him saying I need to be baptised by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied Let it be so now It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness Then John consented As soon as Jesus was baptised he went up out of the water At that moment heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendour. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Well, good morning. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Craig Foster. For those of you who haven't met, uh, newly joined the pastoral team here. Uh, let's pray before we have a look uh, at this passage together. Father God, we do pray as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew that you'd help us to read it, to mark it, to learn it, to inwardly digest it, and to be transformed by it. We pray that that might begin to happen this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to begin by asking uh, a question. And what it is, what event or events in your life have you spent the most amount of effort in preparing for? Uh, Perhaps it was some exams, perhaps a big game or a performance, uh, perhaps a work presentation, perhaps a home renovation or buying a new home. The event took up so much of your time and effort and by the time the big day arrived, you were ready. You were all prepared. Now, as you think about that, one of my favourite types of books uh, and also movies are about famous sports coaches, uh, much to the displeasure of my children. But I find these books and these movies uh, interesting as they give a great insight into teams and how these teams prepare themselves for the big games. Two of my favourite sports coaches... Uh, up on the screen there, Uh, Rod McQueen, who coached the Wallabies to a winning World Cup rugby, 
many years ago now, uh, and Wayne Bennett, who has coached uh, several uh, rugby league premiership teams. They are both amazing coaches, super coaches. And as I read their biographies, what struck me about both of them was how diligently they prepared for their games. They treated their job as though they were army commanders preparing for a great battle. Rod McQueen, the Wallaby coach, even studied a Chinese war book, Strategies of War, uh, which he'd quote to his players. He prepared an inch-thick manual for all of his players that they would read and digest, and they did. They memorised it. Wayne Bennett, who has won seven premierships and is still performing amazingly at the age of 67, says, The difference between a good team and a great team is that one is committed and the other is involved. And he likes to use the the example of the egg and bacon uh, about commitment and involvement. He says, the chicken is involved in producing the egg, but the pig is committed in making the bacon. But what is clear about these two coaches is that they do not win by accident. They prepare so thoroughly and diligently. They prepare as though their very lives depend on the outcome of these games. It is the great, as though it's the greatest battle of their lives. Now, the battle involved in winning a World Cup, rugby or an NRL premiership is big. It's a year-long or a four-year-long campaign that involves lots of blood and sweat and tears. But the battle we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 3 and 4 is way bigger, way more serious than any sporting game. It is the battle with the devil himself. It is the battle with temptation. And in this section of Matthew, Jesus is taken out into the desert and for 40 days and 40 nights, he's without food. And while there, Jesus faces the battle of his life. Now, you might be thinking in your mind, why is this battle so serious? You may have heard this story many times about Jesus and the devil in the desert, even as a child in Sunday school. And it's easy for us just to play down how serious it is. But the devil is real. And the temptation for Jesus to sin and abandon God is real. Jesus' battle in the desert with the devil is a repeat of the battle that Adam had in the garden back in Genesis. And the devil has not changed since then. He's still the father of lies. His goal is still the same, to destroy the children of God. And his strategy in the desert with Jesus is the same as it was with Adam back in the garden to doubt God's love for you, to disobey God's command, and ultimately to deny God's authority. With Adam, the devil succeeded. And he uses the same strategy with Jesus in the desert. He tempts Jesus to doubt God's love for him, to disobey God's command, and to deny his authority. And the devil's goal is to destroy Jesus, that he will reject God, and face eternity without him. Is there a bigger battle in our lives? Is there anything more serious than this? No, this is it. Now, when Jesus faced this great battle with temptation, he was prepared. He was ready. He did not say, God, uh, I'm not quite ready. Uh, Please come back later. Let me have a little bit of food in my stomach and get a good night's sleep, and and then let's go. No, he was physically, he felt like he would have run five Hawaiian iron marathons but he was ready he was prepared and how was Jesus ready well today we want to consider how Jesus was ready for this great battle how he was prepared for it 
And in chapter 3 of Matthew, we have a lot of focus on John the Baptist preparing the way for the arrival of Jesus. And finally, Jesus arrives on the scene. And the first thing that happens is Jesus is baptized. And straight after the baptism, Jesus is led out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, I want to consider two questions today as we consider how Jesus was ready for this battle. Firstly, how did the Father prepare Jesus for the battle with temptation? And how did Jesus prepare himself? So firstly, let's consider how did the Father prepare Jesus for this battle with the devil, this battle with temptation? Now, what would you say to your child before they're about to go and face the biggest challenge of their life? What do great coaches say to their teams just before they're about to run onto the pitch? I, lo- I love reading about that stuff in these books. What the, you want to get in the change room and kind of imagine what would have it been like? Well, sometimes they don't say much at all. Arguably one of the greatest rugby league coaches of all time, Jack Gibson, who was a mentor of Wayne Bennett, he said coaching was done through the week. And he said the only halftime speech that he can remember uh, in his playing career when it was pouring with rain, there was mud everywhere, mud from the field into the change room, there was mud everywhere. And the coach was dressed in this beautiful suit and was totally upset with his teams tackling that game. So he dived into the mud, screaming, this is the way you tackle. Fairly memorable, I imagine. And it's the only one Jack Gibson can remember. Now, I recall my favourite rugby coach as a 12-year-old. He'd give us a little card, and on it he'd write what we're good about and what we should focus on that game. I used to love those cards, and so did all the other boys in my team. Well, before Jesus goes into the desert, God the Father kept his words fairly brief. Up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we've not heard from God the Father. And we get to chapter 3, verse 17, and boom! God speaks from heaven. One very brief sentence to Jesus, and he says, if you see it there in verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. One short sentence is all Jesus gets before he's suddenly led out into the wilderness to face temptation. But not one word is wasted. And what I love so much about this verse is that it appears before Jesus has done anything. He's lived his life as a simple carpenter. He's been a righteous and obedient son, but his public ministry to save the world had not yet started. He's not preached a single sermon. He's not done a single miracle. He's not healed a single sick person or diseased person. He has lived a simple life in the backwaters of Nazareth. But God the Father says to him, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. God loves Jesus for who he is, not what he has done. God loves Jesus because he is his son. And wouldn't it be great if all children heard these words from their parents? My son, my daughter, I love you and am well pleased with you for being my child. I'm proud of you for who you are, not what you've done. I love you and I'm proud of you, not for your sporting success, your musical success, your humour, your good looks, your intellect, your successful career, your beautiful house, your bank balance. No, I love you and I'm proud of you for who you are. These words are life transforming. Now, it's not just this verse. Not that this verse doesn't just give us one of the best parenting tips ever. Uh, it's a verse that is full of theological and um, significance and meaning. 
it's, it's the merging of two significant Old Testament passages. Psalm 2 verse 7 and Isaiah 42. In Psalm 2 verse 7, this is a royal psalm about God's king. In Psalm 2 verse 7 it says, You are my son, today I have become your father. It is about God's king of kings, his promised saviour, his son that would save the world. And in Isaiah 42, he says, Here is my servant who I'll uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. The servant of Isaiah 42 is one that will suffer. The servant is described further in, in chapters 42 to 43 in the Isaiah song, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. Thus God's son is loved, but he's also going to suffer. It's, it's loving. Is it loving? To tell our children life's going to be hard. We know it's loving to tell them that we love them. But is it loving to say life is going to be hard? Well, God the Father is real about the struggle and temptation that Jesus is about to face. And he helps Jesus be prepared to be ready for the difficulties. He is realistic. One of the phrases school teachers often use for parents, uh, it's an insight into schools, is helicopter parents. You might have heard that phrase. A helicopter parent is one who's always just kind of hovering above the child and as soon as there's the first sign of struggle they swoop in and rescue the child and intervene and it's a natural response isn't it for parents to want to do that we want to protect our children we don't want them to suffer we don't want them to have any difficulty but is that the most loving thing to do the research would say no unless they're clearly not able to help themselves well we see God the Father is prepared to allow his son to suffer to suffer temptation in the desert and ultimately to suffer death on the cross. Why? Because it will ultimately be for his good but ultimately for all our good here as he dies on the cross to save us. So we see in this short sentence from God the Father three very significant things that are of incredible importance to us. Firstly, he is God's chosen son Secondly, he is loved and delighted for who he is, not what he has done. Thirdly, he will suffer for the people of the world so he can identify with humanity, to suffer like we suffer, but ultimately to save us from sin and temptation. Now, as Jesus enters the greatest battle of his life in the desert, he did not just let go and let God. He fought as though his very life depended on it. He fought with every ounce of his being. We've considered how Jesus' Father in heaven prepared his son for this epic battle. He could be likened to a coach, God the Father. Coach of all coaches, super coach of all super coaches. But there comes a time when the coach needs to step back and the players must step up and be ready for the battle. So we want to consider now the second question that's in your outline that says, how did Jesus prepare himself for the battle. Have a look with me at chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, when we see that Jesus shows his great trust in God. Let me read this first temptation. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this passage of scripture, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is talking to Israel, reminding them of the Exodus. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember how the Lord your God has led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And we are reminded here, as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, of Israel when they spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness. And there's many parallels with Jesus' time in the wilderness, in these first chapters of Matthew, as there was with Israel's time back in the wilderness. And we can, as we go along, Matthew, we'll follow that through. Now, Israel were defeated, declared, sorry, by God to be his firstborn son in early Exodus, his treasured possession. And when Israel were escaping the Egyptians, they came to the Red Sea and were stuck. But God miraculously parts the Red Sea, they escape the pursuing Egyptians, and the Egyptians are destroyed. Now they're sitting on the banks of the Red Sea in freedom. Freedom from slavery, they've been saved. And the whole nation breaks into song, some two million Israelites singing praises to God. However, the joy does not last too long because they're suddenly led out into the wilderness, to the desert of Shur. And for three days they travel without water, and having no water for three days, things are getting serious. People are getting very sick. Many have severe dehydration. Some are in shock. Children are screaming. The songs of the praises back on the banks of the Red Sea are long forgotten. They are thirsting to death. Not starving, thirsting to death here. And what would they do? Would they trust God to provide for them? No. No. They begin to grumble, grumble, grumble. It is a very sad day for Israel, God's firstborn son. But what does Jesus do in response after 40 days in the desert? He's left the shores of the Jordan and God's word of love would have seemed a long time ago to him. He's now starving to death, 40 days without food and water. Can you imagine how he was feeling? What did Jesus do in verse 4? was the exact opposite response to Israel. He kept trusting God, kept trusting God's word in the most difficult of temptations and he succeeded as God's son where Israel failed. Now it's one thing to say we need to trust God and his word in temptation but it's quite another thing to do it, isn't it? When we're feeling so weak. I've just experienced 40 days of testing. Um, After having moved into our new home in Borkham Hills, beautiful leafy Borkham Hills, Um, Now, my time of testing, we've been here actually 43 days today. Uh, Now, it might sound like a bit of a joke when I share my time of testing, but it actually has been one of the most frustrating experiences of my life. Uh, My testing to do is with technology, uh, which I'm hopeless at, and I've realised that more and more. It took me 35 days to get the internet up and running and new phones up and running and tens of hours talking to machines to machines with options, so many great options, but all I wanted to do was speak to a human being. What helped me turn the corner was my wife, Therese, saying, this is testing your patience. And as soon as she said this, I thought, oh yeah, patience. I should look that up in the Bible sometime. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I began thinking about the verses in the Bible of patience, I began to deal with it much better. Sadly, 
It took me 35 days to realize this. And it's so easy to forget God's goodness when we're going through a temptation. And sadly, we don't often turn to his word for help and guidance. As I said, it's one thing to know what we need to do when we're tempted to sin, but it's another to actually do it. Well, Jesus was different. Jesus was ready. Not only did he trust God, but he knew God's word. We go back to verse 4 of chapter 4. His response was, it is written. And in each of the temptations, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus knew his Bible inside out. Now, that didn't just happen by chance. We can easily say, yeah, but he's the son of God. Of course he knows the Bible inside out. Now, you might remember one of the the very few facts that were given about Jesus growing up. Okay, We've got this blank period from when he was a child to when he was uh, 30-odd years of age. And it's when he was at the Jewish temple. Uh, And he loved sitting among the teachers of the law and asking questions. He loved the Bible growing up. And I can imagine that Jesus probably just spent the last 40 days in the desert meditating on Scripture, memorizing it, stamping it on his heart and on his mind. Jesus was ready for the battle of his life. The Word was on his heart, was on his mind, it was on his tongue. He was ready. Are we ready? I recall being at the town hall a couple of years ago, listening to Susie O'Neill, a a multiple gold uh, Olympic swimmer. The audience was packed full of people. And at the end, she received a thunderous applause. It was inspirational. Uh, And as she spoke, she referred to a principle called the 10,000-hour rule, proposed by a guy called Malcolm Gladwell. Susie was talking to all these students, and and she said, if you want to become world-class at anything... They need to dedicate 10,000 hours to it. And she shared about the amazing amount of hours she had dedicated to swimming, the travelling, the hours of training, the hours of competing. She said she had spent 10,000 hours in training for swimming. Lots of blood, sweat and tears, and she won gold medal. And as I was listening to her, I was personally challenged. I wasn't thinking so much about swimming and the black line up and down, how boring that must have been. It did cross my mind. But I considered the hours of dedication she had to swimming, to my own dedication for God. I thought to myself, imagine if I had that commitment to God that she has to swimming. Imagine if we applied the 10,000 hour rule principle to memorizing scripture. Now, there's obviously dangers in talking about memorising the Bible, it's easy to approach it with a quick tick of the box for it to become a chore, not a joy. And it's easy to have great goals and fail miserably, as I have done many times over the years. But the truth is that if we want to make real progress in the battles we face with temptation, then memorising scripture and putting it on our minds and our hearts, on our lips, is crucial. The author of Pilgrim's Progress was described as having bibline blood, John Bunyan. Charles Spurgeon, a famous English preacher, once remarked about John Bunyan. He said this, Why? This man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. And it was the same with Jesus. He had bibline blood. And when he faced temptation, he was ready. It just come out of him, ready for the battle. 
And because Jesus was ready, ready to keep trusting in God, ready with God's word on his lips, he defeated the devil and the devil fled from him. He was victorious. Now, the devil would not give up. He would return for a final battle as Jesus uh, faced the cross where he would tempt Jesus to, to give up dying for the sins of the world. But again, Jesus trusted God, God and trusted his word and he was victorious over the devil. Which means for us, if we are in Christ, we are victorious. We have the power to overcome temptation. Yes, we'll still fail. We'll still fall into temptation. But it's so encouraging to know that Jesus was victorious over the devil and temptation. And we, in the power of Christ, can overcome temptation in the sins that we face right now. I want to finish today with this passage that we had earlier, chapter 3, verse 17. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. These words are given to Jesus just before he was sent into the wilderness to face temptation. And soaking these words into our soul is really important for us to get ready for the battle of our lives, the battle with temptation. And the verse is not just for Jesus. It's for all God's children. You've become a Christian. God says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I love, With with you I am well pleased. And if you're not a Christian here today, Can I urge you to accept Jesus, God as your heavenly Father, and Jesus as your Saviour? And this verse can become yours also. And God will never abandon his children. Everyone in this room will be battling with temptation of some sort, some very significantly at the moment. And if you're not aware of any temptation in your life at the moment, then the devil has you exactly where he wants you, asleep. Because we're all facing temptations. Some in this room will be struggling with bitterness, some with anger, some with alcohol, some with pornography, some with jealousy, some with vengeful thoughts, some with appearance, some with career obsession, some with money obsession. We're all full of temptations that rage against us. This battle is mighty and the consequences are serious. The devil seeks to destroy us. But no matter how intense the battle gets, cling on to this truth that God the Father declares over those in Christ these words, You are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And no matter how hard things get, God the Father will never drop or abandon one of his children whom he loves. Amen.